Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Submarine, the only podcast in the world celebrating submarine explosions in film. Now, during nearly half a century of Cold War, the world lived under the shadow of imminent nuclear annihilation. With the two superpowers permanently poised for war, all it would take to turn the world into a radioactive puddle is one mistake or misunderstanding. And that's the premise of the film we're looking at on this show. It's one of the big sea beasts of the submarine genre and a film that always appears in critics' top ten lists of the best exploding submarine movies ever made. Yep, you've guessed it, we're looking at the 1990 classic, The Hunt for Red October. Joining me in the conning tower to discuss the film is Nick Rehack from French Toast Sunday. Welcome aboard, Nick. Thank you, Will, for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. I, I was really keen to get you on because I know you're a, you're a big fan of the exploding submarine genre. I wondered, uh, you know, what is it about these films that you're so drawn to? I think the one thing I like about it most is just how secluded and how isolated everything is. And you capture all the moments like right then and there. You don't have these big sprawling scenes to distract you. It's really just on the two characters and how they have to interact with each other. The two characters being the submarines, I take it. Exactly. I think the glorious thing about the ocean setting is that there are no distractions from the, our, you know, our prime interest, which of course is the exploding submarines. Exactly. There's no fish. Miraculously, in all of these oceans, there's no fish whatsoever. It's just submarines. That that bothered me a little bit. <laughs> I know we're jumping ahead, but that did bother me a little bit. And how have you been uh, getting in the mood for uh, recording this show? I know you always like to prepare thoroughly. I do, I do. I Actually, when I watched this, I was in my basement where we don't have any windows because I wanted to kind of believe I was in a submarine. At night when I would sleep, I would wear headphones and I would just hear, you know, bubbles and the noises of whales. But I definitely just spent a lot of the time in dimly lit, very cramped areas. I think that is the best way to get yourself in the kind of zone for an exploding submarine movie. So, uh, yeah, I think you've set yourself up nicely for uh, for this show. Okay, thanks, Nick. I think it's time we took this boat up to periscope depth and had a look at the trailer. The most brilliant commander in the Soviet Navy. Remy has trained most of their officer corps. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. The most deadly submarine ever built. This thing could park a couple of hundred warheads off Washington. Nobody would know a thing about it until it was all over. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Without all the vessels, the American Navy. His plan is a mystery. A man with your responsibilities reading about the end of the world. Apparently, he has suffered a kind of nervous breakdown in which he announced his intention to fire his missiles on the United States. He wants us to help you hunt him down and kill him. Open the outer doors, firing point procedures. We sail into history. I'm going to blow him right to Mars. Ramius might be trying to defect. You're just an analyst. Why can you possibly know what goes on in this mind? I'll give you three days to prove your theory correct. I am not field personnel. I am only an analyst. You're perfect. I'm expendable. He's defecting. You're willing to bet your life on that? From the best-selling novel by Tom Clancy. From the director of Die Hard. Give this man a chance. My orders are specific. Battle stations. Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, James Earl Jones, Scott Glenn, Sam Neill. The hunt for Red October.
So The Hunt for Red October came out in 1990. It's based on a Tom Clancy novel of the same name. The film sees a top Soviet submarine commander plan to defect the United States by hijacking a state-of-the-art submarine. The Russians plot to destroy the sub to stop their top-secret technology falling into the hands of the Americans, as do the US themselves, who believe the Rusky sub-captain has gone rogue and is planning to start World War III. Only one man, an eccentric CIA analyst, believes that the Soviet submariner's mission may not be as apocalyptic as they feared. The film stars Alec Baldwin, Sean Connery, Sam Neill, Scott Glenn and James Earl Jones. It was directed by John McTiernan, who is also known for directing Predator, Die Hard and The Thomas Crown Affair. Nick, this was a first time watch for you, so what did you make of The Hunt for Red October? I enjoyed it. There were some moments that were super tense, and there's some moments, obviously, in any film that are predictable, but there's also just general moments where I'm like, I don't know where this is going to go. Like, I don't know how this could possibly end, what this character is thinking, and it definitely kept you guessing a lot more than what I expected it to be. Well, I'm a big fan of this movie. I think it, you know, it's kind of like the Citizen Kane of uh, submarine movies. It's got loads of political intrigue. It's a kind of ends up being a attention-filled game of cat and mouse. And sort of importantly, it's non-stop sub action. You know, we're fully submerged practically for the whole film. You know, there's barely a moment on dry land in this movie. So for submarine movie fans, this is uh, you know a movie you, you absolutely have to see. Oh, definitely. Especially if you're just getting into the genre, this is the one to start with. You don't want to start with something like Das Boot, where it's going to be three and a half hours, and you don't know what they're talking about half the time. This one, it's really easy to kind of dip your toe in the water and go from there. Now, in this film, there are some real heavyweights in the leading roles. We've got a nuclear-powered Los Angeles or 688-class submarine, and a Russian Akula or Typhoon-class ballistic missile boat, uh, not to mention a, a Class 3 Victor. Uh, how do you think these boats acquitted uh, themselves in the roles here, Nick? Actually, I kind of cheated and looked up on IMDb, and a lot of these uh, subs spent time alongside other subs as they ran drills and different types of uh, military tests, and they kind of just really mimicked what they saw, and I thought that attention to detail is what really makes this film stand out and makes it that much more believable that you're right there with them. Well, I, I kind of agree. I thought that the uh, I thought the subs in here they all they all brought a sort of quiet solemnity to their roles. They were you know sort of a stoic diffidence really. They they're obviously not the most communicative of vehicles, but they have a real presence in the film. And I thought that they uh, they really sort of you know heightened key scenes in it. And of course you know I'm a big fan of the uh, of the Typhoon. It's obviously the the largest type of submarine that's uh, ever seen service. And and it's not one actually that's currently in service. So if you want to see that type of submarine you really need to go back to this movie and you know you can see it in its full majesty you know what as great as it was to see that i was a little disappointed we didn't see more of the class three victor this is kind of getting into spoiler territory but you only see it towards the beginning of the film and then again towards the end and i was i was really disappointed by that because i thought that would be an equal i thought it would be more of like a three man three man or three submarine excuse me a three submarine leading type film but here it is it's like mainly here's two and then here's one on the side well, I agree with you. The Victor class submarine is a is a fantastic, uh, you know, attack submarine, and but it does play a kind of key role in the film. So uh, I would like to have seen more, but I, it does get to be involved in some of the more showy sequences in this movie. So uh, you know, I hope you didn't feel too cheated. I don't because it does show up in the showy scenes, but I guess I just wanted to see more character development from it. But I'm happy with what we saw. 
So alongside these submarines, there are some well-known actors in the supporting roles of this film. So we've got uh, noted Russian actor Sean Atoli uh, Konoryevich as the uh, Russian submarine commander Ramius. Uh, I don't know about you, Nick, but I was really confused why Sean Atoli decided to uh, play the role with a Scottish accent. I guess it's the same reason that John Wayne decided to play Genghis Khan with no accent at all and just use his own. I guess it's the, his acting is so good, you're just like, no, Russians actually sound like this. It wasn't the most convincing Scottish accent to uh, for him to go with. And, you know, he can do accents. I have heard uh, Sean Atoli do a very good Spanish accent in Highlander. And uh, he did a very good Moroccan one uh, when he played a, a Berber uh, tribe leader in uh, Wind and the Lion. So it kind of makes his failure to uh, to really sort of nail the, the kind of Scottish accent uh, in this film uh, pretty inexcusable in, uh, in my mind. But I also sort of struggled to recognise uh, Sean Connery a bit in this film because he has uh, this kind of you know incredible uh, hairpiece on his head it's this thick lustrous gray steely wig i mean it was a really piece of impressive uh, hair I and mean, it kind of looked like he had blowfeld's cat on his head yeah <laughs> it did it really did like it was just it was almost another character in itself it was just there it was ever present and i feel like there were some camera angles that were used to kind of focus on the hair more than the actor itself like the way they framed it i was like i see what you're doing john i see what you're doing well apparently his wig for this movie cost twenty thousand dollars so uh we no... didn't <laughs> you're you're making this up <laughs> no i thought i've researched it and oddly there actually seem to be quite a few people who claim to have actually made that wig but uh, yeah, apparently it cost twenty thousand dollars, so no wonder they wanted to, uh, you know, make sure that they got it kind of uh, nicely captured on the with the cinematography. Do you know where it is now? If it's like in a hall, or if it's in like a random Planet Hollywood somewhere, or I don't know. It's uh, it's probably one of the kind of the great sort of lost treasures of uh, of cinema, really. I hope that's not the case. Then it needs to be on display somewhere, be it a Smithsonian or something. Maybe Indiana Jones will go and find it in the next, you know, Raiders movie. Maybe. <laughs> the other key character in this film is CIA analyst Jack Ryan, who's played by uh, Alec Baldwin. What did you make of his performance here? It's interesting to see him in a role like this because outside of bit parts here and there where he plays kind of supervisors or higher ups and uh, they're usually like supporting roles, this one he kind of takes on and plays a bit of an action hero and I thought that was kind of interesting to see just because like I said I've never seen him in that kind of role and I felt like he handled it as well as he could for it being a 90s action film. No, you're absolutely right, because I think Alec Baldwin is now sort of mostly known in the sort of secondary supporting type roles. But at this point in the 90s, he did seem to be doing quite a lot of leading man roles. But this one was probably the most successful one that he did, because he did a couple of other films after this, uh, The Getaway, which, and he, which he did alongside his uh, then wife, or I think he met his wife, uh, later wife, Kim Bassinger, uh, on that film. And he also did, was it The Shadow or The Phantom, kind of comic book I think uh, the adaption. shadow sounds right, and neither like the getaway and the and and the shadow uh, pretty much tanked at the box office, and I think that pretty much killed off his uh, sort of leading man career. And after that, he seemed to just sort of slot into these uh, secondary sort of roles. Although he uh, didn't, uh, he was interested apparently in kind of continuing on in the Jack Ryan series, but he obviously didn't come back with Harrison Ford taking over the role. And I don't know, uh, have you heard anything of the rumours that he didn't want to come back because there weren't going to be any exploding submarines in those movies? 
I've heard said rumors, but you know they say always assume a rumor is false. But I like to think that this one's actually true. Interestingly, in this film, Alec Baldwin uh, does a Sean Connery impression, which uh, I don't know how you felt, but I thought he sounded more like Sean Connery than Sean Connery himself. I agree, and it really caught me off guard when all of a sudden he's doing this. I'm like, wait a second, is this supposed to be like uh, a director's trademark in a way? Because isn't there a moment in Die Hard when Bruce Willis's character is kind of poking fun at um, Alan Rickman's character? I don't remember that bit. If memory serves me right, I think he's like climbing in a shaft and he's kind of poking fun at Rickman. Or it's some moment where it's, the shots look very similar to each other. And I thought, a that was interesting, and b like just what a I get. I don't know. I, I because the whole time this movie, I'm like, okay, it's a thriller, it's tense, but you're putting in these moments of comedy, like you're taking away from the tension. I'd agree with you there because in Die Hard, Bruce Willis's character throughout the film is making sort of sardonic remarks, whereas in this film, Alec Baldwin's character is a much uh, straighter arrow, and that is the one sort of moment in the film where he does make a kind of funny aside, one-liner type of comment. So it does, as you said, yeah, it really catches you sort of off guard and does seem a bit sort of out of keeping. And I, clearly, it must have just been something that was just dreamt up on set because I, I can't imagine that they uh, wrote that into the script at any point. It was at him, like, maybe during a lunch break, he was, you know, goofing around and doing the voice, and the director was like, I gotta have that in the movie. There was one particular weird moment in this film where uh, Alec Baldwin proceeds to explain to an air stewardess what turbulence is, which I thought was a very bizarre scene. It was, because you would think that she knows that's her job, <laughs> and instead he goes on to explain it. I'm just like, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't... And then she's very insistent on him going to sleep, too. Which is another thing that was awkward. Like, the whole conversation was awkward, and it really just shouldn't have been in the film in general. She's like, why don't you just lay down? He's like, I'm fine. She's like, no, really, you should lay down. As if everyone else on the plane's asleep, and this is the only time for her to get a nap. Like, that whole exchange, I was so uncomfortable. It was a very weird scene. I think the only reason for its existence was to establish the fact that Alec Baldwin's character is basically uncomfortable on any form of transport other than a submarine. Because, you know, when he's, uh, he's in the helicopter, he's on the plane, he's always uncomfortable. But put him on board a submarine, he's happy as Larry. It only makes sense because the submarines are the showpiece. Obviously, submarines are loved and renowned the world over, so it only makes sense. So we've got Connery and Alec Baldwin in the kind of two main roles here, but uh, this has got a really deep cast in this film. Uh, who, who caught your eye here? Jeffrey Jones actually caught my eye, only because I've only ever seen him in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then here he is in a much low-key, more, I guess, less of a villain than what he ended up being in real life, too. Uh, less of a villain, and just kind of like a helper-outer. Like, he's he's almost like, if you've ever watched uh, CSI or Law and Order, how they need a guy to get to the next guy. Like, he's that guy. He's that interstitial piece. He's like, well, I think this will happen. You know what else is interesting, too? When Alec Baldwin asks him a question, like a very straightforward question, it's a yes or a no, or like maybe a sentence, he goes into the story about when he was 12 years old. I'm like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> like, there's no need for this moment. Like, just give him the answer. We don't need a, a side story. Like, I, that's, that blew, that boggled my mind. I didn't understand it. In terms of the other cast in this movie, I enjoyed seeing James Earl Jones in this film playing this uh, senior uh, CIA figure. And presumably he was cast in the role because, you know, in 1990, Morgan Freeman hadn't quite been elevated to uh, that sort of status where this role would have just been automatically earmarked for him. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine if they did a remake that 
you're, that's Morgan Freeman. There's no one else. That's James Earl Jones' character would be Morgan Freeman. It's probably actually sort of Los Angeles bylaw that Morgan Freeman has to be given first pass of those roles. And if he's busy, then they look at Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> Now, this film was directed by John McTiernan, who has made a number of other lesser films which don't feature exploding submarines. What kind of job do you think he did here? I think he did a really good job uh, because he kept the focus on the submarines. It wasn't too much about the characters. It wasn't too much about the situation in general. Everything, no matter what the plot was about or what the character said or did action-wise, it was all about the submarines. And I like that they used, like, practical effects. Like, it wasn't all just CGI'd, you know, fake. Like, it actually gave submarines a chance to work, a chance to shine. And that's something we don't really see nowadays. Nowadays, they're just CGI'd in there. And there's a lot of submarines out of work because of the way that technology has advanced. And it's a shame. Yeah, it's definitely sad times in the uh, submarine acting industry. But, uh, you know, this was the film that uh, McTiernan's career was always moving towards. You know, if you want to see military hardware sort of blown up in a film, you, you know, you basically want to see a submarine. And he clearly likes submarines. He clearly understands them. The submarines in this film are beautifully lit. I really enjoyed, uh, there was quite an extensive use of uplighting on board the uh, Red October submarine. It kind of looked like some sort of very fashionable bar. It did. It almost looked like a place that I wanted to hang out and be a part of but at the end of the day I'm like you know what it's a little too tense for me I think I'm just going to enjoy watching the movie so as a submarine aficionado like me there are certain sort of familiar submarine type scenes that you want to see sort of played out in any movie did you feel you got enough of them here there was plenty of claustrophobic shots there was plenty of top down and bottom up shots there was I, I wanted to see some shots where water was kind of pouring in from, like, you know, maybe a stray missile or a stray uh, torpedo. I didn't get to see that. But overall, I was happy with what we did get to see. For all this film's great qualities, there were it does disappoint in a couple of areas. In a submarine movie, I obviously like to see that submarine taken down uh, beneath uh, crush depth. You know, and I want, I want to see a few bolts shearing off and a bit of water kind of like come pouring in as they're going too deep. And, you know, obviously these were nuclear powered submarines, so we don't have any of the classic sort of engine room scenes where some sort of grease coated uh, engineer is working in some, you know, terribly hot conditions stripped down to the waist. And yeah, this film wasn't really sweaty enough for me. You know what? I didn't think about that until you said it, and now I agree. Uh, that is something that was missing for me, and I think it's something that maybe McTiernan decided that, you know what, it's been so done in the other films that other films have captured it, so I want to focus more on something else, and that's why he did it, but... I agree that it, it could have been more sweaty. You know, one thing, though, that any good submarine movie should have is some good sonar pinging in this movie. You know, we get a bit of that here, but I kind of think you'd be a bit disappointed if you sort of came into this film wanting a good bit of sonar pinging, because the whole, it's all about, uh, there's a sort of key scene in this film, and it's all about only giving one solitary sonar ping. That really bummed me out, especially because it's almost like they're teasing you, like they're in your face on the screen going, we know what you want, but we're only going to give you one. Re-verify our range to target. One ping only. Captain, I, I, I just... Give me a ping, Vasily. One ping only, please. Hi, Captain. <laughs> And then they're like, you know what, let's send one more. And you're like, if you're going to do that, just send a bunch of them. Don't half-ass it. Either do one or go for broke. 
But uh, in fairness to McTiernan, he may only given us two sonar pings in this entire film, but uh, apparently he did listen to 500 different sonar pings before settling on the one that is used in this movie. So he was really, he had a clear vision for what he wanted from the sonar pings in this film. And I think that's a lesson for that other submarine filmmakers uh, you know, should take heed of. Isn't that the dream, though? You just get to sit out and hang out and listen to all these different pings from all these different types of submarines. Like, that's the dream. He got to live that, and I'm a little bit jealous now. Okay, that's the end of the first watch. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at the exploding submarine action. In a world where podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject, one man broke new ground with a seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters explode in film. Exploding Helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about chopper fireballs? Think again. Have you ever listened to that show? I tried, but I like submarines, you know, and you just can't. Helicopter ain't gonna do it. You know, it's just it just kind of teeters around up there, not really doing anything. But a submarine, there's power there. There's a masculinity there that you just don't get with a helicopter. No one can be listening to that rubbish. No one. Okay, now we're going to look at the exploding submarine action. This occurs during the film's big finale. The Americans are just about to take possession of the Red October when another Russian submarine arrives intent on destroying it. There's an underwater battle as the Soviet sub tries to torpedo the Red October. It looks like he's about to succeed but some fancy maneuvering shakes off the missile which ends up locking onto the villain's submarine. The missile zooms into the submersible and blows it up. Nick, what did you make of the exploding submarine action here? I liked it. But I wish we would have seen more of the submarine exploding underwater instead of just cutting to an overhead shot. Yeah, I'm in the sort of same camp as you. I thought there were some really good elements to it. I liked the way that the the submarine kind of lights up a bit like it's been struck by lightning. And we sort of see it implode a bit. But we do cut very quickly to the sort of this broiling, seething mass of water on the ocean surface. And uh, yeah, I wanted to see a bit more of the uh, action under the waves. Yeah, I wanted to see, you know, some of the pieces. I wanted to see it kind of fall apart. Does it fall apart into in halves? Is it three pieces? Is it is it more than that? Let's float down to the ground, watch it hit the sandy bottom, and the sand kind of rises up. You get that kind of shot. I would just, I really would have liked to have seen something like that. Just a little more time with it, because really, that's the Victor Three or the Class Three Victor. Excuse me. Um, we don't get a lot of time with it, so why not spend a little bit more time with it as we see its death? That's its big moment in the film, and yeah, it's it's sort of at that final moment it's denied the spotlight to shine in and you know you kind of wonder what McTinnan's got against the uh, Victor 3 class submarine I don't know he must have some kind of vendetta out because it, it doesn't show up as much as I'd like to see it okay I think it's time to clear the bridge Nick thanks for joining me on Exploding Submarine thank you very much for having me it was an honor if you enjoyed the show don't forget to check out the Exploding Submarine website or follow us on Facebook or Twitter we'll be back soon but until then keep watching the oceans for those exploding submarines
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.